Hello and welcome to Horror Court Trash Over, the show that discusses all the masterpieces and trash to pieces of genre cinema. My name's Chris. And I'm Gary. And this week we are discussing a film that I've wanted to discuss for a very long time. I've watched it endless amounts of times over the years. Fantastic director, fantastic film. It's George A. Romero's Martin. It is. From 1970, well, from 1976 or 77. Depending, depending on yeah. what website. I don't know how that works, but yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, obviously, our podcast listeners will know from previous episodes that we've discussed uh, Romero previously, Dawn of the Dead, The Crazies, but of course he's known for Night of the Living Dead, Day of the Dead, Creep Show, uh, Night Riders, Monkey Shines, and so many more. Uh yeah, written and directed by him, one of his personal favourites of his films. Yeah, and understandably as well. I th- I think it's been a bit of a cult classic. I think the problem was it's sandwiched in between Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead. Um, so it's kind of, in my opinion, I felt like it was kind of forgotten. And when I watched it, I. I bought a DVD one time because I loved Dawn of the Dead and Night of the Living Dead so much and um, I bought it and watched it so many times over the years but it's, I think it's been a bit lost. Oh it definitely has yeah no it absolutely deserves to be discussed a lot more when it comes to Romero because I truly believe he's got four or five star films and of course three of them are the the, tri- the original trilogy of the dead mm. um but i think the fourth one's this one I, I really think this deserves to be recognized just as much as those three i think so definitely um spoiler alert for the ratings at the end yeah. um but yeah no I, I i completely agree um it's one of those films and there's a fair few of them from you know particularly the 70s, I, I feel, that make me question why we believe elevated horror is a modern concept. Mm. You know, I'm thinking stuff like Don't Look Now, you know, yeah. that's, that's slow burn, but it's nuanced and it's layered and it has impeccable, you know, acting and direction and yeah. says something, which George A. Romero was very famous for, you know, his, his social commentaries. And it's certainly not lacking in Martin. But I do wonder why it's such a modern concept. Oh, my God. Do you know what? Horror. You saying that. Now, every now and then we, we struggle a bit with, uh, if you've seen this, I re- we recommend checking out. And... Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to change what either of us have said for the end of it, unless you've said this about me knowing. Mm. Um, but what you've just said made me think immediately of Bones and All. Yeah. Bones and All is very much like a modern day Martin. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's true. And honestly, I know we cast him in a lot of remakes, but if Martin was to be remade, Timothy Chalamet would absolutely. Oh, 100%. It, yeah. It'd 100%. be A24. Um, or it might not be, it might be just um, Luca Guadagino and Timothy Chalamet because this is very much, I, I believe Martin was a big influence on Bones and All. I mean, it's based on a novel, isn't it? What, it's Bones and All? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. so it wouldn't surprise yeah. me if, I don't know when the novel was written, um, but I think there must have been some influence in there because it's yeah. very much, um, yeah, similar. I think we've got to the point where Martin is more well-known and readily available. Yeah, it's definitely got a cult following. Yeah. That, that's for certain. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, it's one of those, when you think Romero, immediately you think Trilogy of the Dead. Of course. Um, or maybe Creepshow. Uh, but, yeah, no, he's he's got so many great films, and he really is, I, I would say, probably the most underrated horror director, because, again, you think of those films, but you don't think of his other ones, such as, like, The Dark Half, Monkey Shines, um, and even something like Night Riders. And I, I'm sure I say this every time we discuss Romero. We may have to do Night Riders eventually. But Night Riders is really a a hidden gem that needs to be seen. Yeah. But he's so, he's just such a fantastic director. He really is. Yeah, there's some lows there. Like but... two? Yeah. Two lows out of all those films. We haven't seen Survival of the Dead, but out of everything I've seen, there's only been two bad films. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's true. Are um, we in agreement? It, there's always vanilla. There's always vanilla and bruiser. And bruiser. Yeah. Um, bit of backstory to Martin. According to producer uh, Richard P. Rubenstein, by the time both he and Romero got together to make the film, Romero was under a serious debt, uh, almost a million dollars, after the back-to-back failures of the films he had done after Night of the Living Dead. Mm. Rubenstein told Romero it was all right to declare bankruptcy and start over again. However, Romero refused because he felt it was inappropriate to back out on the people who had helped invest in his films. So Rubenstein, uh, having a lot of respect for Romero for not walking out on those people, partnered up with him so he could get him help get him out of his debt. And this was their first film together, but it wasn't until they made Dawn of the Dead, which became a financial success, that they were able to pay back his debts. I see. So, yeah, not a huge box office. Budget for this. No, I mean, I don't know how much it made, um, but the budget is either 80,000 or 250,000. Those are the two numbers that kept coming up. Okay. Somewhere in between that. Um, The original cut of the film ran nearly two hours and 45 minutes, and as of 2021, this version has never been screened publicly and was considered lost until it was rediscovered through the efforts of Romero scholar Kevin Kreese and the Living Dead Museum. But this was supposed to be on the second site 4K release, this two hours and 45 minute cut, but mm. no, they, they, I think there was a struggle with the rights at the last minute and they had to uh, cut it, unfortunately. But I would love to see that. Do you think... Because I think this is a five-star film. Yeah. Again, spoiler alert. I think it's a great film. Do you think adding to it would help the film or not? Depends what they added. Because it's pretty close to perfect. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. It depends what they added. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, we know Romero works very well with length. You know, Dawn of the Dead is a fucking long film, but it's a perfect film. He knows how to include stuff that matters. Yeah, I suppose. Yes. I don't I don't think he's renowned for lengthy films. No, but, but he's shown that he can do it, though. Yeah, it would be interesting. It would be an interesting watch. I just, I don't know what, what they would add to it. Yeah. He wanted the film to be in black and white as well. Um, okay. But the producers didn't want to risk the experiment. Uh, and to be honest, I'm glad they didn't because then the flashback scenes wouldn't have been as good because you wouldn't have had that little transition between... Yeah, yeah, because those flashback scenes raise a lot of questions. And I think if the whole thing was black and white, it may not be so obvious. Yeah. Uh, or clear-cut, mm-hmm. the, the intention. Yeah. And in 1983, British pop duo Soft Cell released a song uh, titled Martin, inspired by the film. Nice. I haven't heard it, have you? No. It was a bonus track, wasn't it? Uh, I believe so, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's good, it's good to know Mark Holman was a fan, was a fan of it. Yeah? Um, cause I, I actually think this film is absolutely a uh, queer allegory. Do you? Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And even more so, I've always thought there's bits there that kind of that kind of hint towards it. But when analysing it for the podcast, mm. absolutely. He's absolutely really? bisexual. And his uh, his cousin is just a, an older, bigot relative. Do you think that's that? what I think? That's, okay. that's what I take from it. I mean, it. we all, we all Which sort of... is a little ahead of its time, because considering, you know... The AIDS pandemic would have been like 10 years or so, five to 10 years or so later than this. Mm. And a film like this, you'd expect to see in the 80s during all of that. I mean, look at the allegories in Lost Boys, for example. Um, But I I do think this is uh, Queer Panic. With older relatives. Really? Yeah, that's what Mm. I take from it anyway. I think that's interesting. I don't necessarily see it. Um, or I didn't necessarily see it as I was watching the film, mm. but I think it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Shall we talk about who's in it? Yes, in a section we like to call, Hey, I Know You. And 
Hey, we know them we from do. a lot of uh, Romero films. We do, yes. <laughs> yes. A lot of regulars. Um, can you say cheap labour? Uh, yeah, yeah. John <laughs> when Amplis. When down, get your wife to star in yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> well, John Amplis uh, stars as Martin. Yes. Uh, Romero's original script for the film had him as a much older character uh, who was actually established as a vampire struggling to live in the modern world. But when he saw his performance in a stage show, he rewrote the character so that he could play him oh, as wow. a younger and more innocent character. Mm. Uh, and the film actually had an extensive voiceover narration all the way through by Martin, much like the trailer. Uh, but it was cut because the narrative was strong enough without the voiceover. But the dialogue is actually in the novelization of the film. Oh, I see. Um, yeah, I... Now... You've said that. Mm. I don't necessarily think it would have worked as an older vampire no, trying no. to live in the modern world. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he would have lost a lot of the nuances and yeah. the sort of characterization and, and layers. Um, maybe it could have become a black comedy. Yeah. Yeah, In, in that sense. Which, okay, would have worked, but, but yeah, John... I think it's better in this way. John Amplis was star of Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, Creep Show, Midnight, The Dark Half, Night Riders, Blood Eaters, No Pets, and more. Toxic Zombies. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Christine Forrest, of course, George Romero's wife. Uh, was he married to her until when he died? Yes. Yeah, yeah I believe so, yeah. Uh, she plays Christina, and she was star of Monkey Shines. Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, Creep Show, Two Evil Eyes, Bruiser, Night Riders, Blood Orange, and The Dark Half. Yeah, and of course it's a case of, you know, get my wife involved and, yeah. you know, I don't have to pay her as much because she can be more invested <laughs> in uh, the profits and such. Mm-hmm. But um, I think she does a fantastic she job. She does do a very I good job. I actually do. Considering, I don't, I don't know if she's a trained actress or not, because she does seem to only mm-hmm. appear in his films. Yeah. Uh, but I think she does a fantastic job. Yeah. And again, her character definitely added towards my theory of what the film's actually about. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, true. Very, very much uh, an ally. Mm. Tom Savini uh, is Arthur and... As you know from many, many episodes, he's a star <laughs> from Dust Till Dawn, Dawn of the Dead, The Perks of Being a Warflower, Machete, Planet Terror, and earlier in the year on the podcast, The Demolitionist, and more. Uh, he also did the stunts and special makeup effects for the film, as you can tell. Of course. Uh, his face can clearly be seen in the scene where the street person is hit and rolls over the hood and roof of the car. Uh, yes. And finally, because uh, a lot of people in this film... We're in very little. Um, Some of them only in this film. I had to dig deep, and oh. I found Roger Kane as Lewis, the star of Deep Throat Part 2, The $50,000 Climax Show, Highway Hookers, Wet Rock, Wild Pussycats, Slippery When Wet, Wet Fantasies, Wet Christmas, Secrets of a Willing Wife, Hard Erections, and more. So he worked with Disney a lot, then? He, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yes, Roger Kane is in fact a porn star. Um, I would like to point out the name Hard Erections. Because, I mean, yeah, erections are hard. <laughs> that, that, I mean, that that's true. <laughs> that's so, almost like the Jess Franco film, Nightmares Come at Night. Nightmares do come at night. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Roger Kane. What a performance. Michael's brother? Um, no, probably Unlikely. not. Unlikely. Uh, without any further ado, let's discuss our feature presentation. My name is Martin and I'm 84 years old. People think I'm crazy when I tell them how old I am. Or else they think I'm some kind of ghost. From the director of Night of the Living Dead, Martin, another kind of terror. I just have a sickness. I just need to drink blood. So a young man, Martin, travelling on an overnight train from uh, Indianapolis to Pittsburgh, he sedates... Did I say Pits, Pittsburgh? Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. You're not, you're not pronouncing the H. Pittsburgh. Okay, Pittsburgh. Uh, 
I don't travel a lot, can you tell? Sedates a woman with a syringe full of narcotics, slices her forearm with a razor blade, then kisses her and drinks her blood, allowing her to slowly bleed to death. And that is all within the first six minutes of the film. It's <laughs> a very cold opening in both senses. Yeah, my first time watching this was when you showed me, and I was like, yeah, taken aback by the way it started. We get absolutely nothing of the characters. No. Or really the situation before the first kill. Yeah. If, if you hadn't have done any research, if somebody had just put on a film called Martin and, you know, it's not called Martin the Vampire, it's not called Vampires in any sense of the, mm. the word or the, you know, the phrase, um, you would have been gobsmacked. Yeah. Like, what the fuck is this? Uh-huh. You know, it's, you don't get anything, you barely get any dialogue. Yeah, it's the fact that he strips down as well. Like, he yeah. gets naked whilst doing it. It's like, okay, what the fuck is going on here? Ultimately, Martin, and we'll say it from the start because it's going to keep coming yeah. up, is a very downbeat film. Yeah, it's oh, definitely. very. It's not for, you know, people who are not feeling their best. No. Because it is a very downbeat, dark film. Yeah. Very cold um and, and spoiler alert throughout yeah you know there is no happy ending pulls no punches mm-hmm. from the offset yeah it's a slow burn it is yeah but it's a, a, a character study yeah really it is horror and yeah. it has its horror elements um but th- this is a very shocking opening it is and the film as a whole asks the one big question and that is is Martin a vampire or isn't he a vampire? Mm-hmm. Are these flashbacks just his imagination that he has? Uh, and is he just a psychopath that likes to go around eating people and killing them? Yeah. And, um, and how much is it the fault of previous generations? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, if I took away uh, the fact that he's um, bisexual... And that his older relatives don't approve of it. What did you take away from this? I, what I felt the film was about is the, um, I suppose the misunderstanding when it comes to sort of mental illnesses Mm. or disorders and the fact that Martin is a, as a character, you, you do have a bit of sympathy for him yeah. at times, um, even though he does terrible things. But I feel like a lot of it is the fact that he isn't getting the help or he's been told so much that he's a certain person mm. that it, he's almost been created. Yeah. And I don't think for a second he's an actual vampire. Mm. You know, that there is yes or there's no right or wrongs mm-hmm. within it because, you know, George Romero didn't come out and say he is or he isn't. And yeah. the whole point was that he didn't know. You know, yeah. he wrote this character. But how I perceive it is that this young man is in no way a vampire. Mm-hmm. But this young man is highly disturbed. Yeah. And he's been let down by the people around him. Yeah. Um, his fir- the first glimpse of black and white that we get mm. is when he enters her room and he sees her in a white dress. Her hair is back combed in black and white like she's from a Hammer horror film. Yeah. And she sort of reaches out to him mm-hmm. as if to beckon him over. Yeah. Well, that's far from the truth. What we actually get is an empty room and she appears from the bathroom in her dressing gown and a face mask on. Yeah. You know, ready ready for bed. Um, she's not the glamorous victim that he no. had envisioned, envisioned, you know, and there is a struggle. It's not, you know, he's not the handsome vampire that lures mm-hmm. the woman over and she's mesmerised and hypnotised. Yeah. She fights back. Yeah. She says the words, are you some sort of freak rapist asshole? Yeah. And I believe he is. Yeah. And that's, you know, and the film sort of makes you question that. But ultimately, he is. He yeah. is a, he is a terrible person. Mm-hmm. You know, highly uncomfortable, this scene. Yeah. You know, of her fighting back. 
um, he tries to comfort her in some weird way by saying, you know, I'm always very careful with the needles. Mm. He says that it's important to him. Yeah. You know, he's also a very selfish character. And he undresses himself and her as she's been sedated and she's mm-hmm. falling asleep and it embraces her as if they've just had sex. Yeah. Now it is revealed through the film that he does have sex with the sedated women. Mm. You know, that isn't shown explicitly mm-hmm. on screen, thankfully, yeah. but it is alluded to. Yeah. So it is a reminder, you know, th- this guy, he is a murderer, but he's also a rapist yeah. as well. And I ju- I just think this this scene this opening scene is brilliant because it's it just it's a slap around the face mm-hmm. it's like oh shit yeah you know oh wow and because I th- I think budget constraints maybe is in it but also you know wonderful writing and directing it's a slow burn they yeah keep it keeps you you know interested mm-hmm. but you are kind of waiting for the next moment. Where something like this happens mm-hmm. and he kills again. And it does happen and it's just as uncomfortable. Yeah. It's a very fast paced editing as well. Mm. Um, during certain scenes like this that uh, that really help ramp up how intense it can be. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Uh, the, that first scene where he's cutting her wrist, that's the one that the uh, sensors targeted yeah. the most. Um, yeah. Funny enough, the problem was not what was happening and what we're seeing, but how long it goes on for, mm. rather than, you know, the fact that this is what's happening. Yeah, and I, I think part of it, and there's something that's just occurred to me, is that he is a lonely person. Yeah. And his <clears throat> victims are lonely people, mm-hmm. or who he perceives to be lonely people. He is quite um, sort of... I want to say stealthy, but, you know, he <coughs> sees her as a victim because he notices that she's travelling alone mm-hmm. to New York. Yeah. You know, and that's why he chooses her as a victim. And there is a process throughout the film where he chooses a victim based on something he's kind of spied yeah. from them. And, you know, he's sort of, you know, eyed, eyed them up and followed them and then took his uh, his chance. Yeah. The next morning he's met at the Pittsburgh train station by his elderly cousin, Tati uh, Kuda. Yeah, I, I wasn't really sure because they kind of pronounced it Tati, yeah, it tati, sounded like tati, that. Yeah, Tati. Yeah, I couldn't really figure out how they were pronouncing it, but it's written like not how they were pronouncing yeah. it. Uh, he escorts into a second train destined for Braddock, Pennsylvania, a real city outside of Pittsburgh, where local neighborhoods served as filming locations for the film, as many as well as many locals serving as extras for the film. Yeah, and I think it's a very deliberate choice. Yeah, the cops uh, in the shootout scene were actually policemen. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think Braddock, Pennsylvania represents something within the film. Yeah. Um... And I'll get into that later when it when it sort of crops up. <clears throat> I say later, I mean like within like the next thirty seconds. Yeah, because Kuda is dressed in a white suit, and he's very abrupt mm-hmm. from the get go. Got no time for small talk. Um, strangely, Martin uses the bathroom where a young gentleman is having an open door shit. Yeah, um, something that does happen again. Uh, apparently, no toilet cubicles have doors no. in Braddock, Pennsylvania. <laughs> um, this is a really long scene with no dialogue, and we get a sense of eeriness. Yeah, I feel. Yeah, from not really knowing what's going on mm-hmm. or their relationship. Um, I'm assuming Kuda was written as. Is it Coda? No, it's Kuda. Kuda, idiot. Uh, Kuda is written as an older character because. Martin was originally meant to be an older character. Yeah. But the whole cousin thing, I mean, there's a huge gap in there age is, there. Yeah. You know, if if Christina was his cousin, it would make mm-hmm. more sense because they're closer in age. But there's a huge age gap there. Um, we kind of question, you know, what does Kuda know? Why is he so cold? Does he know what we know? You know, and um, 
We also, as they're travelling, get a sense of the area of Braddock, Pennsylvania. So Braddock lost uh, its importance with the collapse of the steel industry in the United States in the 1970s and into the 1980s. Mm-hmm. So it had a population in the 20s of, you know, in the tens of thousands, but then sort of over the decades, I think up until sort of 2000, it slipped down to just under 2,000 people. Yeah. You know, it's one of those where the, the collapse of the steel industry very much affected the town. And you see that throughout the film. Mm-hmm. You know, there's places that are left derelict. Um, people are out of work. You know, they're just hanging around. Um, there's a clear sort of poor rich divide as well, I noticed. Mm-hmm. You know, people up on a hill seem to be richer than the people who are down at the bottom of the hill. Um, within Braddock now, and I think that's a huge part of the film. I feel like the city is uh, not to sound like a cliche, but is an extra character yeah. in the film. Yeah, I think so. Uh, Kuda, in accordance with family tradition, has reluctantly agreed to give Martin room and board alongside Kuda's orphan granddaughter Christina. Uh, Martin claims to be much older than his twink appearance would suggest. Uh, he in fact claims that he's eighty four. He does. He does. Um, and he kind of believes it. Yeah. Too. He, yeah. He does kind of believe it. Um, and only really him and Kuda actually believe that to be true. Yeah. But he also goes throughout the film saying he, he's not magical. Yeah. It's not magic. Yeah. It's like he's in denial. Like he doesn't know. He doesn't know what he is, um, which, again, for both our allegories, definitely makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, he, as we mentioned, he has romantic monochrome visions of religious icons, um, vampiric seductions, and torch-carrying mobs. But whether these are memories or fantasies is not specified. And you get the first one on the train, and the second time when Kuda... Uh, who, who is a Lithuanian Catholic who treats Martin like an old world vampire, starts referring to him as Nosferatu, which happens a lot throughout the film. Is that because they're not allowed to say Dracula? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure because, I mean, if you're allowed to say Nosferatu, there's a good chance you're allowed to say Dracula. But Nosferatu in itself was, um, like, not. I assume not copyrighted. Maybe. I mean, is it now? Because they were sued by Bram Stoker. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he says this like Allah, he'll just pop up out of nowhere. He says, uh, first I will save you, then I will destroy you. Yeah. Uh Kuda warns him to stay away from the locals and not to communicate with Christina or he'll kill him. <laughs> I've told her not to speak to you, but she will. <laughs> you will not answer her. Uh, Kuda tries unsuccessfully to repel Martin with traditional methods such as strings of garlic and a crucifix, which Martin mocks and tells him there's no real magic. Yeah, Kuda also tells him that he must work at his shop. Yeah. Much to Mrs. Bellini's shock. <laughs> uh, Mrs. Bellini, I'm assuming it's Karen Bellini, says uh, a young man in the house with Christina, related or not, I don't think it's right. Kuda says, uh, <laughs> but Mrs. Bellini, I, I can't do, I'm not doing a Lithuanian <laughs> accent, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> Mrs. Bellini says, you shouldn't have it, Kuda, how will it look? And Kuda says, it looks as you want it to look, Mrs. Bellini, my family knows how to behave. Um, The one who doesn't know how to behave is you, Kuda. Yeah. And I think it's another theme that's prominent, prominent. Wow, we're struggling with our words today, aren't we? Prominent. Is the hypocrisy yeah. of older generations. Mm-hmm. And I, I really feel that. I feel like Kuda is really the main antagonist yeah. of the film. I mean, Martin is an antagonist too. Mm-hmm. You know, um, he's a conflicted character. character. But I think Kuda is the main antagonist oh, of the film. Definitely. He's, 
you know, shows no support. He's very much stuck in the past, stuck in his ways. And it's the way he interacts with Martin, but also the other characters. Yeah. Where that is very clear. And it's that kind of behaviour that in many ways has left Braddock the way it has. Yeah. Braddock the town, you know, and is why so many younger generations are leaving the town. Yeah. Because of that old mindset. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's be real here. If uh, if we didn't see Martin going around killing people and uh, sucking their blood and whatnot, then I still think he would be the exact same way with him. Like, if Martin wasn't actually going around doing these things, Kuda would still believe it and would still be that exact way. Well, as far as Kuda is aware, he believes that he has mm, up until But he has no point. evidence. But he has no yeah. evidence. Yeah. And, you know, spoiler alert, later on in the film, he still has no evidence, mm-hmm. but believe he has. Yeah. You know, so it, it it's, it's a very interesting one. And it is throughout the whole film, you know, it, it is a weird sort of mixture of morals. Yeah. Where as a viewer, you're sat there and you're like, well, I'm sympathising with Martin. Yeah. And to a certain extent, I can empathise with him. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, in the case of the queer community, we've been ostracised like that at times as a community. And so we can empathise with that. But ultimately, we realise, well, okay... This is some, you know, asshole rapist freak. Yeah. he It is, you know. And so how far can our sympathies go? Yeah. And that makes it an interesting film, but also makes it the relentlessly bleak film that it is. Yeah. Uh, Kuda points out that Martin is like a weirdo at the dinner table. So Martin decides to mess around with a finger trap to impress Christina. Uh, and when he's in his room later that day, Christina and her boyfriend Arthur, played by Tom Savini, begin to have an argument. So he opens his bedroom door to find out what's going on, but instead he's greeted with Kuda calling him Nosferatu again and fitting a bell at the top of his door. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, he's trying to get the tea on Arthur and Christina's relationship. It is a very volatile relationship. Yeah. And Christina's a really lovely. She does talk to Martin. Martin does struggle to communicate with her. And for me, the question is, is he struggling to communicate with women Mm. or does he just struggle to communicate? Yeah. And it's a difficult one because I don't, you know, he speaks a lot throughout the film of struggling to interact in terms of sexual intercourse. Yeah. Um, But seemingly he does struggle to interact with women full stop. Yeah. Um, I think that's, that's interesting. Christina's also fuming because she's not allowed a telephone. Yeah. Now, by 1976-77, you know, a telephone in the house is very common, even for older generations. Mm-hmm. And so it Kuda's not only just old-fashioned, he's really fucking old-fashioned. Yeah. yeah. You know, we're talking a hundred years old fashioned mm-hmm. that he wouldn't allow a telephone in the house. Mm-hmm. And we realise throughout the film that the the way that he and his ancestors and his family have affected Martin, mm-hmm. but also the way that it's affected Christina. Yeah. And the negative it's effect it's had on Christina, who by all accounts is a perfectly pleasant grounded young woman yeah you know who who doesn't have the um sort of i mean mental illness that that martin does or or we could believe does Mm -hmm. because of the whole vampire thing yeah and yeah and in this next scene uh we see that she's highly skeptical and critical of kuda's beliefs uh when he tries to tell her all about martin being a vampire Mm. Uh, she thinks he should receive some psychiatric treatment when he tells her that he's 84 mm-hmm. and uh, goes on a big rant about the way the family's treated him, showing that she is indeed a true ally. Yes. And I, I think Martin kind of, he doesn't actually, he doesn't actually say anything against getting psychiatric help. No. Like part of him realises that he 
probably should. Yeah. But he kind of excuses it. He says, oh, no, it wouldn't work for me. Rather than... So it doesn't say, no, I don't need it. Mm-hmm. It's just, oh, it wouldn't work for me. Yeah. So there's no point. You know, so there's... It's that sort of duality of his character mm-hmm. where he believes that he's 84 years old. Yeah. But doesn't believe he's a vampire in the traditional sense. Mm-hmm. Whereas he believes that he needs psychiatric help, but doesn't believe it would work for him. So, mm. and yeah. I, I feel like part of an, a massive spoiler. I'm sorry, <laughs> <laughs> but I believe that he does travel there because no one, no one forced him to travel there. Mm-hmm. No one, you know, handcuffed him and kidnapped him. I think part of the reason why he went there is because he was ready to die. Yeah. And he didn't see a way out, mm-hmm. you know, and it was maybe hopeful, but couldn't see a way out. And yeah. eventually it happened. Um, Martin seeks advice from a local radio disc jockey. A, a what? <laughs> like, a, like, a disc, like a horse jockey. Like an apprentice jockey. An apprentice jockey. Uh, who dubs him <laughs> the Count. Uh, yes, we're saying the Count and nothing that sounds similar. He rejects many common perceptions. I still think in Dracula is they weren't allowed to say yeah. it. Yeah. He rejects many common perceptions about vampires, saying there is no magic stuff. The DJ's uh, listeners consider Martin to be a hit. Uh, whilst making deliveries for Kuda's butcher shop, Martin meets a lonely, depressed housewife named Abby Santini. When she touches Martin during an attempt at seducing him, he flees. Yeah, so uh, initially she trauma dumps on him. Um, yeah. She she lives at the top of the hill. Mm-hmm. And she um, feels sorry for him because he's travelled all that way for what is essentially a piece of meat and she drives yeah. anyway. So she drives him back into town. She trauma dumps about her unhappy relationship with her husband mm-hmm. and... You know, she's having a, a tough time and he doesn't speak at all. Martin no. doesn't until the very end where he thanks her and she asks him if he's available for um, handiwork. Yeah. You know, DIY a- around the house. Um, I think she's a, she's an interesting character because she's a, she's a lonely character mm-hmm. and he doesn't kill her. No. Um, but he still feels drawn to her. Yeah. Because they are both very lonely people Mm -hmm. who aren't getting the support that they need. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, I think that's interesting. We don't see too much of her during the film, but I think their relationship is an interesting one. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, especially with how her story ends as well. Yes, yes. Uh, unbeknownst to his family, Martin goes to Pittsburgh and targets a woman he sees at a grocery store. Believing her to be alone whilst her husband is away on business, he breaks into her house but finds her in bed with her lover, which is Lewis. But unfortunately, um, grocery store woman doesn't get a name. She doesn't. No, she. I think she's just called housewife victim. Yeah. Um, yeah, which I'm not a fan of. But I suppose Lewis only gets a name because she has to shout his name. That's true. That's um, true. So she had to have something to shout. And because he's played by a porn star. Yeah, of course. Um, this sequence is, like, nail-biting intense. It's so, so creepy and just really grubby and horrible. There's an odd bit of camp in there as well. I don't know if age has given it camp. Yeah, like Martin just bouncing off the bed and drugging Lewis with a syringe. Yeah. Like, and then running away and then just like running around the house. It's kind of camp, but kind of unsettling in the same way, which is something that Romero is very good at doing. Um, and, and this is probably the best example of it. I think maybe the fact that this is the most 70s house yeah. that has ever existed uh-huh. uh, <laughs> makes it camp. But also the Lewis and the, the woman shouting at each other yeah. and getting muddled and mixed up. And it's a very messy affair. Mm-hmm. Again, it's not, you know, the 
um, Count Dracula seducing yeah. the lady. And that ruins it for Martin. Yeah. Because, you know, Martin does, you know, burst in on them. And, and Lewis, he's nervous of the affair being found out. And the woman is shocked because she quickly explains that she has no idea who the fuck Martin is mm-hmm. and that this is an invader. And yeah. I think that's almost played for laughs. Mm. Uh, that moment. Um, he again says, I'm not going to hurt you because of him. Yeah. So he says to her, I'm not going to hurt you because of Lewis being here. Mm-hmm. And he says to Lewis, you know, you weren't supposed to be here. And I feel like Martin in some way sees the women that he targets as belonging to him. Mm. And the fact that Lewis was there means that she is in some way impure or not fully his Mm -hmm. because he had that sort of hallucination at the beginning Mm. with the train victim of her reaching out to him. Yeah. And that's not the case in yeah. either of of these scenes. No, no. I mean, I just kind of this just kind of added to my interpretation of the film the fact that he decided to go for the man instead of the woman. Yeah, but I I think for me it's because she's seen as impure mm. now. She doesn't belong to Martin. Yeah, and he kind of I thought with Lewis. He kills Lewis without the intention of drinking his blood mm-hmm. because he stabs him with a large stick yeah. in, into the neck. Um, and his face moves. As it, it's a pretty gnarly. I mean, it hasn't aged the best. The effects haven't aged the best, but it's a pretty gnarly scene. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, he takes his shirt off and drinks his blood. Um, but I think that's because he his sort of insatiable desire for blood. Mm-hmm. That's how I interpreted it. Yeah. You know, he could be a bisexual character in Mm -hmm. that sense, but doesn't fully commit to the bisexuality. Uh, Well, he kills and feeds on him uh, and then drugs the woman before leaving the scene and talking to the radio DJ about people being difficult and how he's always been too shy to do, in his exact words, the sexy stuff. Yes. (laughs) At least with anyone who's conscious anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And that's when the film tells us, oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. This, yeah, this is a really bad guy. Yeah. Not that we didn't know beforehand the fact uh-huh. that he murdered complete strangers, but this is, okay, you know. Yeah. We, we why are, are we on Martin's side? Mm-hmm. Are we not on Martin's side? Yeah. Back in Braddock, Father Howard, played by Romero himself, has dinner with Kuda, Martin and Christina. Kuda tells him how older people need a priest who thinks in the old ways before he starts asking him about his belief in demons. Uh, to which Kuda recommends Father Zulamas, Zulamas, should I say, uh, an older priest who claims to have fought demons. He said he went to see that film, The Exorcist. He said they did it all <laughs> wrong. I don't suppose you've seen that movie. I thought it was great. Yeah. <laughs> Romero popping in his review of The Exorcist. And uh, I thought it was actually quite funny um, at the beginning where uh, Kuda was like, oh, you were sent here or you asked to come? And Father Howard says, I was sent by the diocese when Father Corelli retired. And Kuda, being a twat, says, retired? Huh, Father Corelli is younger than I am. He asked to leave. He left like the rest of them. He thinks this town is finished. To which Father Howard replies... Uh, no, he has cancer. He's very near the end. In fact, I haven't heard. He may be gone. <laughs> um, Kuda is mildly embarrassed. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that, again, shows the pig-headedness mm-hmm. of the older generation. And of Kuda in particular. Yeah. The, uh, he, the judgment. Mm-hmm. The judgmental side of him without knowing the facts. Yeah. And we're like, oh, you think you've got it bad? We've had it. I'm still working. Mm-hmm. You know, I st- I'm still going. I'm 70, 80, 1059, you know, and I'm yeah. still going. Yeah, you don't know what hard work is, mm-hmm. you know. And I, I think that's, for me, what I took from particularly the character of Kuda and yeah. from the film. 
Yeah, no, definitely. Um, he brings uh, Zulemas to the house and he attempts to perform an exorcism on Martin. Martin gets his revenge for this by playing a prank on Kuda and jumping out on him in a foggy playground with a cape, white face paint and fake fangs. I love how uh, Romero made this look like an old fashioned yes. Universal Monsters uh-huh. um, scene. I love that because in the back of your mind, you're like, oh shit. Maybe he is. Yeah. <laughs> and then you realise, no, you dumbass. You know, this is... Yeah, he, he doesn't look like that. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, I think it's the amount of uh, fog that mm. we get in the playground that really adds to it. And then we get... um, I, I don't know what it's called. Where it becomes like a circle. What's it called? Fisheye. Is it fish? But it's not fisheye because it didn't go weird. You understand what I mean? Yeah. Like, like a teles- looking through a telescope. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Martin. I better go back to film school. Martin goes to uh, see Mrs. Santini again. He says, You want me here for sex, don't you? I've never really done it before, but I've decided I'd really like to do it with you. Lucky girl. Um, Martin has sex with Mrs. Santini, and they begin a full fledged affair which lessens his appetite for blood. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that he. His first for blood lessens when he gets sex. Yeah. When he has sex. Yeah. With someone. And so it's kind of like, well, you know, is the blood a... um, What's the word I'm looking for? A replacement mm-hmm. for sex in his life. Which is... Incredibly creepy. Yeah. When you really think about it, like, oh my god, mm-hmm. ew. You know? Um I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I mean it is definitely uh interesting that these that, that sort of coincides with with uh, when he first has sex. I mean it could just be her with her similarities to him, finding someone who's like him. Like she's clearly depressed and had yeah. a terrible time in life. Maybe that is, you know, because, I mean, with what happens to her as well, I don't know. Like I, a kindred spirit. Yeah, yeah. Um, someone, you know, I'm. we're assuming that Martin's a very lonely person. Yeah. Very difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, difficult for him to communicate. Yeah. And we have no idea what his parents were like, but from what Kuda has said... His mother believed in the vampire um, folklore yeah. and the family curse. So I'm assuming that his mother wasn't great either. And so he's somebody who has been, you know, left or you know, kind of left to be lonely and can't really function in relationships. Mm-hmm. You know, and he's found a kindred spirit, somebody who is also lonely, sad, and they've come together and it's made him, I don't know, ha- happier mm. in a sense. And so yeah. his replacement for that, which was blood, isn't necessary anymore. Yeah. Uh, Christina, on the other hand, is becoming increasingly frustrated and fuming by her disagreements with Kuda, ultimately moving out of his house and bidding Martin goodbye. She tells Kuda about himself before she leaves, shouting at him about the insanity in their family, and he is disgusted with her language, to which she says, language, shit on the language. And then she says, I'm leaving with Arthur tomorrow, but don't worry about us having any offspring. I won't even stay with Arthur. Arthur's just my way out. Yeah. Another girl boss. Yes. And this is Christina's story is her wanting to get their hell out of Kuda's home. Yeah. But also out of the town. Yeah. Because there's nothing in the town mm-hmm. for her. She's a young woman who wants to see the bright lights and wants to know that there's a future for her no matter what she chooses. And that's not available to her. In um whatever the place what's the place called remind me 
Braddock. Braddock, excuse me. And that's not available to her in Braddock. Mm-hmm. She doesn't love Arthur. And Arthur probably doesn't love her. But it's a relationship of convenience because, you know, he probably needed someone to cook and look after him and she needed a gateway out of Braddock. Yeah. You know, the straw that breaks the camel's back essentially is when Arthur stands her up to go to the bar for a drink with Kuda. Mm -hmm. Kuda tells him that he may not want to have children with Christina given the family curse. Yeah. Arthur then recounts that to Christina, who is fuming at Kuda sticking his nose in particularly with something that she believes isn't even true. Yeah. Um, now, I th- I think that this family curse, because it, it is something that ge- has sort of genetic links, I think this family curse is a mental illness. Yeah. Um, and because the mental illness paired with this crazy old generation telling them that the curse is vampirism mm-hmm. has created this folklore yeah. and this vampiric family curse and someone like Martin is a victim of this mm-hmm. um, yeah that's that's how I perceive yeah. it yeah it makes sense uh, worried about experiencing withdrawal Martin goes on a feeding binge in the city where he attacks a pair of homeless men and narrowly escapes the police yeah, he lets Mrs. Bellini off, despite her berating him at the store for being lazy. Uh, she essentially says, Oh, Martin, you're lazy. People around here work hard. And which is ironic, given how the, the place, it, you know, Braddock yeah. is, and how no one is allowed to work hard mm-hmm. in Braddock, because the industry has, you know, died. Yeah. And so someone like Arthur, who is dying to work, someone in the younger generation like Arthur, really is desperate to work, has to leave Braddock Mm -hmm. because there isn't enough work for him to work hard. You know, I think it's quite ironic. And again, that pig-headedness of the older generation, Mm -hmm. that hypocrisy, you know, the fact that they don't see beyond their own four walls Uh and see how things truly are. For the younger generation. And instead of helping, she's berating them. Yeah. For that. Yeah. Upon returning to Braddock, um, Martin visits Mrs. Santini, only to discover that she has committed suicide by cutting her wrists in a bathtub. Kuda, who has learned of this, believes Martin to be her killer and fatally stakes him through the heart before burying him in a backyard flower bed. Um, well, talk about a hard-hitting ending. Yeah, because after this... Completely out of nowhere. Yeah, we get radio callers inquiring and speculating about the count uh, whilst the end credits are rolling, um, whilst Kuda places a small crucifix atop Martin's grave. So he's buried him in the garden. Yeah, and that's the end of the film. And that's, that's the end of the film. Yeah. Really cold, downbeat ending. Yeah. I mean, it matches the beginning... And yeah. the middle. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's not like it's a black comedy sandwiched in between. Um, yeah, just I think with Mrs. Santini, she wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wasn't enough yeah. for her. They both were very sad people who kind of were reliant on each other to stop themselves. Yes. Yeah. And it ultimately wasn't enough. Martin ended up having to drink blood. Mm-hmm. And Mrs. Santini couldn't face it anymore in her depression and killed herself. Yeah. Because the, the help, they weren't actually being helped by each other. No. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, very sad, obviously. And then to go from that, to, I mean, there's a scene where he's Martin's walking through a parade, and then boom, he wakes up, yeah, and there's a stake for his chest, yeah. yeah. At the end, mm-hmm. and I think that's so wonderful. I know, I know, I would, 
I would hope that the longer cut would still have this as the ending because it's a really shocking ending. Yeah. It's a really powerful ending, I felt, and it's what really stuck with me after watching it. Um, It's sad, but also brings up a lot of questions mm -hmm. because ultimately I, I question whether Martin knew that this was his end. Yeah. And he kind of wanted it to be that way because he had spoken to the radio presenter and at times he'd said, you know, part of him hoped somebody would catch up with him mm -hmm. and kill him because, you know, he's lived for so long and he's tired, you know, or he's he knows that what he's doing is bad and that he needs to ultimately be punished for it. Yeah. It, you know, raises the question of, what's going to happen to Kuda because everyone in his life has left him. Mm -hmm. He's alone. But he also seems happy with that at the end. Yeah. Strangely But I enough. mean, this is also that, you know, the idea that, yes, a villain was killed. Mm. You know, yeah. he... He was a villain. By killing him, you know, no one else is going to get eaten or sexually assaulted. But at the end of the day, he's also killed by someone who's willing to kill someone just from hearsay. Yes. You know, just someone who's just no concrete evidence to say that this guy was ever a vampire or killing anyone. Uh-huh. You know, what's to say in uh, he's still out there and if he has suspicions about anyone else, he's just going to go do the same thing. And that's the thing, Bakuda, is that he, instead of helping Martin, he ultimately punishes him. Mm -hmm. And it begs the question is if he had had more help, before the film had started yeah. and throughout the film, could it all have been prevented? Mm -hmm. And he could have gotten the help he needs and the, the correct punishment for his crimes. Yeah. You know, and it, it, it it's really interesting. A again, it's a lot of very sort of sad, dark questions we're asking yeah. here. Um, but I think... Films don't have to have happy endings. They don't have to come to a clear conclusion. Mm -hmm. You know, these are the kind of films that stick with you. The films with the layers, with the interesting characters, with the interesting morals, particularly in horror films. Yeah. And I, I just think it's fantastic. I, re I really yeah. do. I think it's wonderful. No, it absolutely is. It absolutely is. Uh, it's definitely one of those films that I would urge all horror fans to watch because... If you haven't seen it, you're missing out on a uh, on a classic. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and let's get to the awards. Biggest queen is obviously got to be Christina. It's Christina. Yeah, we 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 like you know she's a strong woman who knew what she wanted. Yeah. Um, you know she tried to help Martin, but you know did he want to receive that help from her? Mm -hmm. Who knows. Biggest gasp. It's a big, long gasp because I've got that entire opening sequence on the train. Yes, I agree. But the ending. Yeah. For me. Yeah. Best dialogue. I've got language. Shit on the language. I went with, are you some sort of freak rapist asshole? Because ultimately, that's the question for the whole film. Yeah. And, you know, whatever side of the fence you are, I think he is some sort of freak rapist yeah. asshole. And that's camp. I've got Martin playing a vampire prank on Cuda in a foggy playground. Um, George Romero as a priest talking about how much he enjoyed The Exorcist. Yeah. It was it was hard. It was very, very difficult to find camp in this film. Uh, for ratings, I give it 10 ambiguous t twink vampires out of 10. I gave it 10 times Mrs. Bellini should have minded her own business out of 10. And Masterpiece, Trash to Be Trash or Basic. I think it's a masterpiece. I think it's a masterpiece. And if you want to check it out yourself, it's available on Blu-ray, 4K, and Video On Demand. The 4K transfer is amazing. And if you enjoyed this, I recommend checking out Let the Right One In, another vampire drama, but a modern day one, and with uh, LGBTQ plus allegories in there. Yes. Um, I... No, I suggest if you enjoyed this, check out Maniac. And of course... As we realised at the start of this episode, if you enjoyed this, also check out Bones and All. Yes. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. If you're a fan of Martin, let us know on social media. We're Horror Court Trash over on Facebook and Instagram. Horror Court Trash on Twitter. 
I'm done at Gaz92 on Letterboxd, Gazmo205 on Instagram, and now Freds. Gazcruz92 on Twitter. Uh, did I say that already? Yeah, whatever. Yeah. You know where to find me. Uh, but yeah, we're also on Freds as well. Um, you know, yes. Horror court trash ever. Yeah, and I'm Chris Barker823 on Instagram, Threads, and Letterboxd. Uh, give us a rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, like and follow on everything else, a rating on Spotify. Next week, we are back with some camp. Some camp, some trash, some fun. Yes, thank God. We will be discussing the Prom Night sequels. <gasps> Hello, Mary Lou. Yes, part two. The Last Kiss and Deliver Us From Evil. So we'll be back. Same time, same place next week. Bye.